want to start with a main idea. If you're a note taker, uh, there, there's this kind of the main idea today. If you have the app, and, and if you don't, I know we keep talking about that, but that's where we put everything we're telling you. We put a Bible in there so you have it. We put our notes in there so you don't have to frantically write them down. I checked this morning, and they're in the app today, unlike last week, which was actually my fault, so I'll own that one. Uh, but as we talk about just kind of a main idea today, the church is Christ's messenger to the entire world, not just those who are like us. This often takes us beyond where we are comfortable. So Jesus, as I was just saying, as we were praying, his final words in the book of Acts as he, gets, as he ascends back to heaven, he says, he says, wait here until my spirit comes upon you. Right? Wait till the spirit comes upon you with power. In other words, there's a, a mission I'm calling you to, and you just can't accomplish it in your own strength. So wait here until I pour out my spirit on you, and when that happens, when power comes upon you, then you'll be my witnesses. And then he says these three spheres of influence, if you will. Right here, now he's speaking to people in Jerusalem. He said, wait here in Jerusalem. And he says, then you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem. Beyond that, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Jesus in Matthew, he says... Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have given you. Right? There's this this constant reminder that we have a mission here in our city, our Jerusalem, Cerritos, right? Or this, this kind of Orange County, L.A. borderline on this side of the 605. That's kind of where God has placed us, the greater Long Beach area, if you will. And then... Our next out surrounding cities, maybe that's just all of Orange County and L.A. County, Inland Empire, wherever we can reach to. In this context, this would have been country, so a lot larger circle, if you will. But then it says, into the ends of the earth. Now, a lot of times when we hear that, we get mixed up with this idea that we should be foreign missionaries, that we should pack up everything and we should go to some tribal area in Africa and we should go live our lives there. Like, that's the call of God to everyone. And it's not. The vast majority of Christians will be called to stay where they live and be missionaries there. That our role be to be that witness of Jesus here and then wherever we go. And then if need or if possible, to the ends of the earth. But what that's going to do is that's going to encounter people that are both like us and unlike us. People that we will necessarily click with and those we won't. And that's what I want to look at today. Paul has a a group of people that he really has a heart for. In fact, we talked about that last week, and in our community groups, we pressed into that. But what about everyone else? Acts 18, I'm going to start in verse 1 again. says this, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And so just to kind of recap where we were, Paul had gone into Thessalonica, then he'd gone into Berea, and then he'd gone into Athens. Now, the first two, if there wasn't a book of the Bible named after the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, you probably would have never heard of that place. And Berea doesn't even exist anymore, I don't think. So now we've got Athens. That makes sense, right? We know that Athens, Greece, still kind of, that exists. But what, here's what's going on. Paul is taking this message of the gospel. He is going out and he is proclaiming that the Christ is Jesus. In fact, that's a sentence we're going to, or a phrase we're going to read in just a minute. But he's doing this into, in, in very Jewish communities. So he's going out to Thessalonica and he's going into the synagogue. He goes in there, and then some Jewish people begin to follow Jesus and and really understand this is a very different setting than it would be today. Today, for a Jew to become a Christian, if they're an ethnic Jew, uh, 
a little different, but if they're a practicing religious Jew, they're really abandoning a faith and coming to a new faith. Really moving from Judaism to Christianity is more like that today. Then this is a fulfillment of Judaism. That doesn't make that untrue today. It's just not approached that way. This was going into the synagogues, opening what you and I would call the Old Testament, the prophets and the law and the poetry and the wisdom and going into the narratives and the chronicles and going in and saying, listen, the promises of God that God has been promising for thousands of years to our patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Moses, that these promises of God have come to be in the man Jesus. So he's going into synagogues and saying Judaism has come this far. It's waiting on the promises of God, but God's already fulfilled them so Judaism can go farther. Now, Paul is a religious Jew. He, he is a former Pharisee who has come to follow Jesus. And so he's going into these towns, and there's some mixed responses, some violent responses, some very welcoming responses. And then he gets to Athens, and there's very few Jewish people. And God continues, especially we can see that through this, through how Luke writes this story, that we see this continued non-Jewish response. We see some Jews come to faith, but primarily what we see is a non-Jewish response. And what we're seeing there is God is highlighting the shift of those who follow Jesus from a primarily Jewish base to a primarily non-Jewish base. In fact, Acts 13 and 14 is entirely about that shift. And so now we're leaving Athens, and Paul is continuing on going to Corinth. Also, two letters in the Bible written to the church that is planted there, and we'll see that church start today. Verse 2, it says, He, meaning Paul, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, before Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament at all, Priscilla and Aquila, they become uh, some foundational characters in the New Testament, if you will. They are leaders in the first century church. And so Paul not only travels with them, does ministry with them, helps start churches with them, but also Paul sends them to places when churches are struggling. He'll send Timothy over here, and he sends Titus over here, and Priscilla and Aquila over here. These are really core leaders in the first century church. And, and then you see that they're tent makers by trade. Now, kind of think construction, if you will, because hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, lived in tents in this century. So it's a lot like home builders, if you will, but on, obviously on a very scaled-down model, if you will. But tent makers weren't like broke construction workers by any stretch of the imagination. This was actually a fairly lucrative trade. Now, Paul had this trade, too. And, and you may wonder, okay, well, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a well-trained Jewish leader. But there was a saying in first century Judaism that says, if a father failed to teach his son a trade, he taught his son to be a thief. And so almost everyone had a trade outside of what they did. They could work with their hands. And this isn't a, a very agrarian setting. This is a you know, raise cattle and go, grow crops kind of lifestyle. And so Paul's family or someone along Paul's journey taught him to be a tent maker by trade. So Paul actually had a job he could do with his hands. Now Priscilla and Aquila, same thing. And so they partner up, if you will. So if you're a note taker, here you go, team ministry. The mission of Jesus is to be accomplished as a community 
not just a bunch of individuals. Paul travels with a team, and he seeks out new people. Now, the idea of team might not be super familiar as we talk about the context of ministry. So I want to qualify that a little bit. So ministry is not just what I do because I work at a church. Ministry is what we all do, right? And that ministry is that service of Jesus, where Jesus has called all of us to serve. And that can be in the local context of a church. That can be lots of things. It can be vocational. It can be volunteer. It can be a lot of things. But then we also tend to talk a lot about reaching lost people, that our lives are to be witnesses to the world around us. Well, also a ministry, also a calling from Jesus, and not just a vocational calling of leaders who maybe work in churches or have gone to seminary, whatever. But this is for every one of us. And so we tend to separate, well, there's vocational ministry, there's ministry in the church, and then there's this, this calling that not every Christian loves to embrace over here about reaching the lost, and that sometimes this one really feels like it's a specific gift set or something, and it's hard to figure out. But we're all called to both. We're all called to serving the local church. We're all called to being witnesses to those who don't know Jesus. So we hear these things, and we tend to hear personal callings, individual things. I'm going to go reach lost people in my neighborhood or people that have never heard of Jesus in this context over here. But if you remember Jesus, as he sent out the disciples, did he send them out alone? No, two by two, right? He paired them up on short little trips to go out and to do things and teaching them and working with them. We're designed to do ministry, all ministry, even reaching those whom we know and love that don't know Jesus, we're designed to do that within community. So team ministry should be something we should be thinking about in all the facets of our ministry. So the mission of Jesus, meaning to reach a lost world, to see communities healed, to see people meet Jesus, the mission of Jesus is to be accomplished as a community, not just a collective of individuals. Paul travels with a team, and he seeks out new people all the time. And then again, you'll see him send off teams of people to churches that are struggling, right? Our church has got a history of walking with other churches and coaching other churches and doing that, and we'll, we'll kind of send leaders and help them. We'll start new churches. We'll start three churches in the last roughly three years. That we believe in that, and we believe that this is bigger than just us, right? Verse 4, and it says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul's normal. When Paul would go into a city, Paul would head for a synagogue if he could. If he would go into a community, into a city, he would try and find where the Jews met for church, if you will, right? And so it says every Sabbath, Jews worship on Saturday and on the Sabbath, so he would go in, he would find them there, and because he had a religious leadership background, a Jewish leadership background, he would go in, he would open up the Bible, what they would call their Bible, you and I today would call the Old Testament, remember the New Testament at this point is being lived out, not written necessarily, and so he would open up what they had as holy scripture, and he would read from there, and he would show how that pointed to Jesus, and then it also said now, and this is new, he would also try and persuade Jews and Greeks. So there's a, you see Paul, he's still got a heart for Jewish people. Those are the people, he was born into this kind of community. He is trained this way. The, this, this is the, the place where Paul feels the most comfortable. But there's also a place where God is using him, and it's amongst Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, non-Jewish people. 
And so now he's got this bifurcated approach, if you will. He goes to the synagogue, then he goes to the non-Jews as well, and he's built that into his rhythms when he goes into a new city. Verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, it's an odd sentence in our modern, kind of to our modern eyes, if you will, that the Christ was Jesus, or is Jesus, right? We tend to hear Jesus Christ as if it's a, a first name, you know, surname, like there's a, it's a full name, right? And really, Christ is a title. Christ is not like king, but Christ means the promises that God had given to the Jewish people. It means the one who fulfills them, right? This is the promised one. This is the anointed one. This is the promises of God. And so Paul would go in, and he's reasoning with the, with the synagogues, and he's saying, listen, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. When, when God proclaimed the gospel way back thousands of years ago in Genesis 3, he was speaking of the he, the seed of the woman, the he he was speaking about is Jesus. And you fast forward through Moses and the proclamations, the Messiah to God to come, God's promises fulfilled. You work through Isaiah and the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53, and you fast forward to Daniel and the promises of Daniel, all these things. Paul is saying all these things speak of Jesus, that he is the fulfillment of the promises of God. Now, just pause there for a second. And yes, the vast majority of the promises in the Old Testament fulfilled already. There's still some promises to come, correct? Like there's still some promises that Jesus will right the world that is wrong, right? That Jesus will, will get back... In, will make right again, redeem the planet, redeem a people, restore what we have broken. So there's promises to come. The same thing applies to us today. The promises of God are or will be all fulfilled in Jesus. Right? There is no one else. There is no other name, as we just sang in that song that, that, uh, that our church wrote and, and, and gets to participate. There's no other name. Only you, Jesus. And so the same thing, Paul is proclaiming the same message as we proclaim today. There's no other name we're looking for. There's no other way. There's nothing else. Only you, Jesus. That's what Paul is proclaiming, but he's doing it 2,000 years ago to a specific crowd. And then he has a different approach when he's with Greeks and non-Jewish people. But he is proclaiming Jesus. And like we talked about last week, he's not fighting some cultural war and saying, hey, listen, you're idolatrous bad people. He's just proclaiming Jesus. He is preaching Jesus. Christ and him crucified is a way Paul writes it himself. Verse 6, and it says, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments. And he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. You ever seen somebody in that, that kind of gesture that says, man, I'm just, just dusting people off? Well, that was the Jewish way of doing that was just shaking out an entire what they had on, their garment, their robe, whatever they had on. They shook it out. And you had to think, as people walked along dirt roads or little pebbles, things got caught up in the hem and in the garment. And when they'd shake this out, you'd just see the stuff scatter and the dust scatter from walking along these dusty roads. And it was just that. Paul is saying, listen, man, I'm just shaking off the Jewish people, in a sense. And, and no more am I going to go to the Jewish people. I'm just going to stay with Gentiles. And, and here's what Paul's really saying. My frustration with my own people is really high right now. 
We were talking earlier this week in the office, and I try and make statements, especially uh, political-ish, or things that have been politicized. I try to try and say them in ways where they're super neutral, what, really where they're kind of aimed at everybody, not just aimed at one side or the other, because truly I think both sides need to, need to course correct and figure out maybe where we would be, right? And it was funny, we were talking about it, and I said, really, my effort is to do that, and somebody said, well, I, I thought you were this, and, and I'm not, and, and so that was really funny, and I thought, good, I'm saying it neutral enough. And I said, well, really, I'm actually, if anything, probably you think that is because I aim hardest at the people I'm like. Because I see the flaws in our own camp, if you will. And that's where Paul is. I'm so frustrated with the people like me that at the end of this all, his big passionate heart for reaching lost Jewish people and telling them, listen, the promises you're waiting for, God has already accomplished. God already, has already fulfilled them in Jesus. If you would just look, if you, can I just show you from God's own word himself, can I, can I show you that it's Jesus? And then they will revile him and call him a heretic. Some will beat him. Many have had him arrested and beaten and jailed. And just, they have done these things to Paul. And at some point, Paul just says, listen, I've had it with you. Like, I'm out. You guys, don't listen anyhow. I'll go over here to the people group none, we don't like. Right? Like, you guys are God's people. God's been using you for thousands of years, but you're so hard-headed. Not that Christians would ever be like that, right? <laughs> Clearly a Jewish issue only. But he says, man, I'm, I'm over it. That's like saying, you know what? I'm done with Christians. I'm going to go preach the gospel to Muslims only. Like that's easier somehow, right? Or safer or something. Anyhow, right? That's what he's saying. Like I love you, but oh, you guys are killing me. Verse 7, and he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. This is a pivot point, actually, in the book, and it's kind of subtle. And because these are all foreign names anyhow, like I don't know anybody named Titius anymore, <laughs> right? Maybe a Titus here and there in, like, Ireland. But we hear these things, and they don't really resonate as much where they're from. But this is a Corinthian. This is a Greek-Roman name. This is not a Jewish name. And he happens to live next door to the synagogue, which is a little misleading. He's not a Jew. And so Paul really just kind of just dusts off the Jews and shakes them out of the fold of his robe, if you will, and just voices and vents his frustration, really, with the people that he loves so dearly. And he meets this man named Titius Justice who lives next door, and he begins the Corinthian church. We're going to see this as it kind of gets started up and, and as it moves on for about 18 months. But here's what's significant. He is starting to grab leaders that are not Jewish, the meeting place, the home for the birth of this Corinthian church is going to be in a non-Jewish man's home. This is a move from being a very Jewish-centered church to a very not Jewish church. So paradigm shift, Paul is approaching his faith his leadership team, and a meeting place for the church differently by including non-Jewish people. How do we as a church think through this as we seek to reach a new city? So we've been a church who's been mobile for a little over, about roughly two and a half years before we were able to get here. 
And so we had a paradigm. We were in the city of Los Al, which is Orange County, right? Now we're just, we're not very far away, but we're in the city of Cerritos, which is LA County. So we've changed cities and we've changed counties, even though really from our office, we just moved straight up the street, right? Not very far. For some of you, it's a little further. For some of you, it's a little closer. I know you further ones have told me. And, <laughs> right? But we have a new approach. Demographic studies, the, the cities, the demographics of the two cities are fairly similar. But I will tell you right now, they are entirely different cities. Los Al is a tiny city that is super active, social, and just an incredible. They're both incredible cities. But Cerritos is a big city, the first master planned city in California. And they love to say that, right? Which just really means getting anything through the city is challenging, right? There's a lot of things to work through. Not that Los Al, you know, not, they didn't have their things, and every city's got their process. But we have to ask questions about how do, how do we now be a Cerritos church? Right? Those are questions I'd never asked prior to this. Los Al was our home. We met in their high school in their performing arts center. We, we worked with their city parks and recs department all the time, their police department, their fire department. This is a whole new ballgame. How do we have to change to reach this city? You see, the typical Christian church, I would venture to say, and, and including us, is asking really questions of how the city can come to us, not how we can change to meet the city. Does that make sense? How many churches are saying, what can we do different? How can we change? Well, Paul's going through this moment right now. He's got non-Jewish non leaders now. He's got a non-Jewish home as a meeting place. He's frustrated with the Jews. He's saying, listen, God is giving me more outcome. Or the fruit of my ministry is larger over here in the non-Jewish community. It challenges to ask questions. Verse 8, it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So notice we get this non-Jewish response, and now we get a Jewish response. And I, I can't tell you for sure. I don't know this. This just how I read this is this. God has been highlighting since Acts 13, God is highlighting the non-Jewish response over the Jewish response. Read through Acts 13 and then the retelling of that in Acts 14. And what you see is Paul going to Jewish people and, and really not a whole lot of response. And he walks out in the street and non-Jewish people are coming to faith left and right. We keep reading this story and then there's this frustration. And the Jews are persecuting Paul and, and sometimes arresting him, beating him, jailing him, doing those things. But the non-Jewish people are welcoming in and philosophers are inviting him up to speak and things are going on. And it's not that there's a priority against Jewish people or for non-Jewish people. It's not that. It's that there's a shift taking place in the church as it leaves an old paradigm of how it used to be. And we go through this generationally. The gospel doesn't change, but the, the church changes as culture changes. The gospel remains the same. Jesus remains the same. The Bible remains the same. But the church must contextualize with each generation. And this is the shift that Paul is working through. And he is seeing this, and he's also still seeing a Jewish response. So it says, I'm going to reread verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul is going around proclaiming Jesus. 
saying, listen, this, this broken world that we live in is not how God created it. God created it before sin. God created and, stu- and put, placed humanity in the center of it to, to steward this world, to, to tend the world that God had created. And, and he made us with a design. He created us to be worshipers of God. That in our right, when we work the right way, when we do, when we live the way God created us to live, we are living and in all ways we are bringing glory to God. Not to ourselves, not to our church, not to our spouse, not to our kids, not to our job, to God. That we are making God glorified when we work hard, when we, when we parent, or when we marry, or when we do it, we are bringing glory to God. In all that we do, in all the ways that we do, then we bring glory to God. That's how we were created to live. But sin entered into human history. And then you and I have piled our sins on the mountain of sin already from millennia of sinful, corrupt people like us. And I don't mean us before Jesus. I mean just us in general. That we continue to pile sin on this planet, right? That we continue to pile sin into our country, onto our planet, onto the world, and just continue to break the world God designed. But God knowing this, God loving us, God in his benevolence, in his grace, in his mercy said, listen, I could just leave you to your own choices. I could just let you drift off and and just implode. But I love you too much. And so God who created us and designed us loves us and fulfills his promises in Jesus to come and redeem a broken world. So Jesus enters into humanity. He lives the life you and I were called to live and and brings all glory to God without sin. The only one to be sinless. God in the flesh. And then God goes to the cross in Jesus Christ. and, And on that cross, Jesus, who is both human and God, is crucified. And how the creator of life dies, I'll never understand. But Jesus gives his life for yours and for mine. And Jesus is buried to prove his death, is resurrected three days later to show he is the author of life. And that if we are in him, we have new life. That we are transformed from who we were to who we are created to be. And that's not overnight. That's not, that's just, that is a process that we'll be in for as long as we're alive. And then Jesus ascends back to heaven and calls us to be empowered by his spirit and live for him, be witnesses to others. It says that this, this synagogue leader comes to faith and is baptized. And if you're unfamiliar with baptism, baptism is, it, it has meaning to it. And when you go into the water, you die to the flesh. It shows that, listen, I died to the old ways of my life. When you come out of the water, you arise like Christ rose from the grave to new life. When the first crowd that ever heard the church preach in Acts 2, the crowd said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter The one speaking says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This is for you and the generations after you. We'll be doing baptisms here in just a few weeks, uh, two, three, four weeks. I forget what date, two, two, three weeks, something like that. Anyhow, if you've never been baptized, now, now would be the time. Come be baptized. Receive those promises of God. Identify yourself with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's a powerful thing. And it is with meaning and it is with power. There's a promise over that. Like, listen, I will give you new power in the spirit. Jesus promises this. Peter repeats this. The synagogue leader, this Jewish man. Now, understand this. Baptism was for non-Jewish people to become Jewish. It was to cleanse them of their Gentile ways. But this Jewish leader understood this is about sin. 
and this Jewish leader is baptized in this Corinthian church. Verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you and harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I love this verse. First of all, you have to understand the context. Paul's been chased out of city after city after city at threat of death, at arrest, at beatings. He's been jailed. He's just, it, it, he's, had, he's been through it. And he is now in this city, and each time he goes into a city, this, this crew from the last city or the city prior follow him in and are chasing after him to persecute him. And here's what God said. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Stay here. I'll protect you. That's what God says. I will keep them away from you. You don't have to worry about them. This is my favorite part. I have many in this city who are my people. There's a famous quote from Julius Caesar. When he is out conquering nation after nation and his, his reign as emperor is expanding. And Julius Caesar is quoted to say this. There's more of Rome out, there's more of Rome out there. They just don't know it yet. Jesus says, yeah, I got many people in this city that are mine. They just don't know it yet. And all over the world, Paul, I want you to stay here. Don't be silent. Continue to speak up. Continue to be who I've called you to be. Our mission. Next slide. We believe without a doubt that God has placed us in Cerritos for the single reason of telling people about Jesus. We believe that God has placed us here because he has more. He has more that will follow him, whether they know it or not yet, that there are more there. And that our role, our role is to proclaim Jesus in this city. And that doesn't mean it ends at the city lines. I don't even live in the city. I live two cities over. But that there are more that are called Christ already. From the foundation of the earth, there are these people that have been called Christ's, and they just don't know it yet. And that we get to the, the privilege of going and telling them about the Jesus who loved them, who loves them, who died for them, who gave his life for them, who rose from the grave to give them a new life, who will make them brand new. Verse 11, it says, And he, meaning Paul, stayed for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul stays for 18 months in this city. Paul barely ever stays weeks. It seems like he keeps getting chased out of cities. But God said, I want you to stay here. I want you to plant a church here. He stays here. God protects him here. He stays for a year and a half telling everyone about Jesus. He begins the church that we get to see the New Testament letters written to, First and Second Corinthians written to. We know there's many letters to the Corinthian churches, two that are in the Bible. And Paul is beginning that right now. And he's doing it in a non-Jewish home as the church is beginning to take a new shape and a new form. Verse 12 says, when Gallio, when Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. If any of you are fans of history, 2,000 years ago, Gallio and a man named Seneca, both very famous authors, Seneca is his brother. Seneca, actually, a more famous author. 
They, this Gallio rises to the level of a historic figure, a man with deep sway in the Jewish community. And so the Jews come in and say, listen, Paul is teaching people to worship God in ways contrary to law. In other words, he's teaching them false things. And Gallio says, listen, I don't, I'm not seeing it. Here's what I'm seeing. You guys are arguing about names. You're arguing about who is the Messiah or the Christ. That's what you're arguing about. Is it him or is it not him? You guys go, do you guys go figure this out on your own? But see, without Gallio, they couldn't arrest him. Without Gallio, they couldn't beat him. Without Gallio, they couldn't put him to death. And what we see is God just stopped everything through a powerful man named Gallio who never does, from what we can tell, become a Christian. He just stops and says, listen, no, let's just, we shouldn't engage this. Verse 16, and he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. God keeps his word. Paul is protected. Next slide. God is faithful. Paul is frustrated, but God is faithful. Paul is safe, and people are coming to faith. It doesn't always look the way we want. But when we follow God's direction, his outcome is always accomplished. Paul goes into these cities and he goes to the synagogues and he really has a heart for the Jewish people. It's not going that way. Some are coming to faith, but not at the level Paul just wishes it was happening. And we've all been there. We know people that have come to faith and we know people that have not. And we're just, our heart is in some of those things where God has not yet moved and we continue to pray and reach out. And Paul's frustrated. And Paul's frustrated with his own people, the people he loves. But God is being faithful. God is keeping his word. Paul's safe. Other people are coming to faith. Verse 18 says this. After, Paul, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave of his brothers and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. As Sincrete had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So most think that Paul takes this Nazarite vow, a, a short-term vow, that he would take, he'd start with uh, a complete cleansing ritual, and then he would abstain from some things. So, like alcohol was one of them. Uh, he would abstain from people a, a lot. Like I take some time alone. And really, as you see him circle back to Antioch, which is his home base, Syrian Antioch, he really takes this time away. And he's been gone now for years, at least two years. And he takes this time just to press into God. Modern-day equivalent is fasting. Is taking a season of fasting. Fasting is simply where you deny yourself something physical, often food or, or some types of food or some things, and you do that to press into things spiritual. You take that to engage more prayer, more time and study, more whatever it might be. Do this on the front end of things, sometimes on the back end of things, sometimes in the middle of them, just to, to really press into God, and that's, that's what Paul is doing. Verse 19, let's use this, these last next few verses for some application stuff that we can take into our community groups. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Find anything humorous about that? Paul's right back there. You know those Jews he's never going to talk to again? Yeah. Right? Like, oh, I'm done with you. Well, no, I was just kidding. Right? Paul's passionate about them. Paul gets frustrated with them, and Paul's just a human being like you and I. He's not a superhero. And he is gone. He's drawn back to the people he loves. So persistence. Paul has a passionate persistence toward the Jewish community. Who are those that we truly desire to meet Jesus? Are we persistent in prayer and action? 
I write it that are we persistent not just in telling them about Jesus, but are we praying for them too? Like, who are the people that we are so passionate about, and are we persistent in prayer and action? Verse 20, and they asked him to stay for a longer period, and he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Now, Paul has this brief stay in Ephesus, but he will come back. We'll see that next week. Obedience. Through Paul, though Paul, excuse me, desires a Jew, Jewish converts, he is always obedient to go wherever God calls him. Are we seeking who God would have us share Jesus with? Here's why I say that. There are the people that we love that we want to see meet Jesus. There are those people in our lives, we want to see their lives transformed. We want to see the, the things that they're caught in, up in. We want to see them changed. We want to see that life that the reason we're sitting here is because something Jesus did in and for and through us. And we want them to share in that. And so there's, there's those. But do we ask the question, Jesus, who is it you would actually, you would desire me to go to? Maybe those are people I don't even like or I don't know about. They're not on my, on my radar right now. But God, who, who are those people? Are we asking who God would have us reach? Verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And when he went down to Antioch, and then he went down to Antioch, and after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. There's two things we see Paul do a lot of. One is church planting, going into cities, reaching brand new people with the message of the gospel, telling them about Jesus, leading them to Jesus. And we see him starting and gathering those leaders. And throughout the book of Acts, we see him raising up elders and handing off leadership and moving on to the next city. We see him do that with both Jewish and non-Jewish audiences alike. But then we see him, and, and we see this in Acts 13 and 14. We see it here. We see it as he will go out and he will make this, this trail. He'll kind of go out and travel around. And that's Acts 13. He does this kind of C-shaped kind of journey. And then rather than crossing over a little body of water right back to Antioch, which is his home church, he goes all the way back to the cities that he had already visited, strengthening the churches. We see him doing this here. He's going back from church to church to church, the churches he had started, the churches he has been with, the churches he has led, and he's going back and he's just making disciples. He is strengthening the church through pouring into those who believe. Paul makes a priority of strengthening disciples. Who are the people around us that we can strengthen so they can become part of the team and join the mission? Right? We all know those folks that, that know Jesus and, and, and their walk is wherever it might be. And there are, there are those that we would say, okay, I don't think they're followers of Jesus. I don't, maybe they're not yet. But there are those who are in this place of just struggling or, or a shallow faith. Maybe it's for a season. Maybe they're in some deep pain. Maybe they're wrestling through some things. But who are those people? It's not just lost people, right? It, it's people that need a stronger, more foundational faith. So as Paul goes back through these areas, he's also strengthening the church. Who are those people in our lives? Who are the folks that really need to be poured into, though they may already know Jesus, who need to be strengthened also, as that's a piece of our call as well? What are the ways we can take the gospel the Jesus that has so radically transformed us, and how can we equip others, those who believe, those who don't believe, those who have been walking with Jesus for a while and those who have never heard his name, how, how can we take that message to them? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. It is your message that has rescued us. It, it, it is your person, that, who you are and what you've done 
that has made us who we are. Jesus, if we truly believe what we say, if you have made a deep impact in our life, how could we not tell someone else? How could we not grow with one another? How could we not reach out to those who don't know you yet? I love that verse, Jesus, as it just says, I have people that are mine that are out there. And Jesus, that just reminds me, it, it, is, it is work you've already done that you call us to, that we get to participate in, that we get to join you in that mission. Jesus, will you use us? Here in Cerritos, back in Los Al, where we have great connections, we love that city, in La Mirada, Norwalk, Whittier, Cyprus, all the areas around here, Long Beach, Lakewood, where, where you have planted us and, and given us, just given us life. Jesus, help us to be a part of your team and your journey. It's in your name we pray. Amen.